Hi, everyone. I'm Mel Butcher. And I'm Michelle Redfern. And we're behind the Lead to Soar podcast. We've got a couple really fun things to share with you. And the first thing we want to share is our colleague, Susan Colantuno. She started a podcast called Be Business Savvy. Be Business Savvy. We highly recommend it. And it's a short form podcast where you hear directly from Susan. It's like having a friendly mentor in your ear. So check her out at BeBusinessSavvy.com. Over to you, Michelle. Thanks, Mel. Well, two exciting things from me, along with Be Business Savvy. Number one, The Leadership Compass. My very first book is due for release on March 26, 2024. You can find out more about The Leadership Compass, what it's all about. Of course, it'll be your ultimate guide if you're an ambitious woman leader. You can find more about that at michelleredfern.com. And hand in hand with the Leadership Compass book is the Leadership Compass boot camps. I'm going to do one boot camp a quarter for 2024 for just six women at a time. And you'll be working through in three weeks. So, yes, it's short, sharp, and high impact. All of the elements from the Leadership Compass and my 40 years of executive experience. So, you'll cover BQ, EQ, and SQ, and you will be positioned to have a career that soars. Again, you can find out about the boot camps at michelleredfern.com, leadtosoar.com, or if you can't find any of that, just drop us a line and we'll point you in the right direction. You're listening to Michelle Redfern and Mel Butcher on Lead to Soar, bringing you the best leadership advice and mentorship from around the world. Learn more at leadtosoar.com. Hey listeners, welcome back to Lead to Soar. It's Michelle with you today and I'm thrilled to bits to have Melanie Ho with me today. And if you don't know who Melanie is, well, you're going to find out through this next sort of half an hour or so, but she's Dr. Melanie Ho actually, so because she's a PhD, an award-winning author and professional speaker. And she does a whole bunch of different stuff around leadership, diversity, equity, and inclusion. And she does that in a way that I find really cool. As colleagues in the diversity, equity, and inclusion space, I really appreciate how Melanie brings some of the, well, gnarly, thorny concepts to life through both storytelling and through comics. And I first came across Melanie on good old Instagram, as you do, and thought, hello, what's this about? Oh, I'm going to follow this woman. And one thing led to another, and here we are today. So Melanie, super, super pleased to have you here on the pod. Welcome. Oh, thanks so much for having me. It's fun having this conversation across so many different time zones. Indeed. So yes, I'm I'm here in uh, Melbourne uh, or Nam, as the traditional custodians call it in Australia. And Melanie, are you East Coast or West Coast? East Coast. I'm in Washington, D.C. East Coast, Washington. Oh, one of my favourite places. So let's hear about you. So for anyone who doesn't know yet who Dr. Melanie Ho is, who are you and what do you do? And how did you get to do what you do now? Oh, gosh, so many ways to answer that question. So I describe myself as a feminist 
webcomic artist. I draw comics about the challenges that women face in the workplace. And then I use those comics to facilitate workshops and keynote speeches and really just to help teams lower their defenses and their guards a little bit when it comes to these difficult issues. I think of it as there's just so much real talk about what women face in the workplace that usually happens behind closed doors. It's hard to get that conversation out from behind the closed doors. And by looking at drawings and also by drawing themselves, I hope to help teams have that candid conversation. So if you think back to, let's say, Melanie's coming out of high school, about to go to college, was this what you wanted to do? Was this where you were heading? What was the plan and what did the plan end up being and why? Yes, so there really wasn't a plan. Although I have to say that I probably was closer to knowing what I wanted to do at 18 than I was at 25, than I was at 30, than I was at 35. And that it was really a few years ago at, I guess, 41, 42, where I returned back to the things that I had wanted to do as a teenager. Oh, okay. If we go back in the time machine, in high school, I became fascinated by the idea of novels that had inspired big social and political movements. In the U.S., we often study, for example, this book from the early 20th century, this novel called The Jungle by Upton Sinclair that really inspired a lot of food safety legislation, for example, around the same time, a novel called Silent Spring by Rachel Carson that inspired a lot of environmental work. And to me, this was so interesting, the idea that fiction could do something more than just entertain, right? I was always a voracious reader. I loved reading fantasy and the Babysitter's Club and not serious books, but books that helped me think and learn new things. So the idea that fiction could inspire policy changes was really incredible to me. I actually wrote one of my college admissions essays. The prompt, I think, was something like, imagine yourself in 30 years and well, what will you have accomplished? And I wrote about myself in 30 years having written novels about, I can't even remember what policy issues, but I saw it as fiction to change the world. I then went to college. I went to UCLA. I had a wonderful education, but I also found that the faculty were very limited by discipline. And so when I would describe this as my interest, well, I want to write novels that help people think about politics and policy and the world in different ways, my English professors would kind of look at me like, well, you know, that's not really the purpose of literature. Hmm. That's propaganda. Propaganda is not art. Propaganda is not novels. And I would talk to my sociology and psychology professors, political science professors, and they would say, well, you know, why would you use literature for that? That's what... We study news and advertising and political speeches and rhetoric. And so I find myself just frustrated because I had this interest and it didn't seem like anybody could really see where it would fit. I ended up designing my own major. I did have a lot of faculty across disciplines who said, well, sure, we'll support you in, in doing that. So I designed my own major. I had to give it a marketable title. So I called it Policy and Media Studies. But really, it was this combination of I was studying novels and films and advertising and news media and politics and policy and sociology and communication studies and just trying to bring all of these things together. Ended up going to get my PhD in English because the advice I got was, if there's a small chance that you might want to become a professor someday, you can't design your own major as a PhD student. You have to pick a discipline. And I thought that English was probably the most interdisciplinary 
major I could think of for a PhD program because novels are always studied in relation to their, their historical condition and context and the sociological context and whatnot. So I studied literature. I wrote a dissertation called Useful Fiction. It was very academic. It did look at the novel as a type of education, but it wasn't the kind of practical treaties I would have wanted to write had I not been trying to do what made sense for a discipline. I then decided I didn't want an academic career. I went into business. When I started there, it was a healthcare consulting research and technology firm. I started in the education division. They liked the fact that I had a PhD. Consulting with college and university presidents, vice president, dean, spent 12 years climbing the ladder there. And several things just kept bringing me back to this interest in fiction, now not necessarily related to politics and policy, but related to business and organizational change. And I started to just return to those ideas I'd had when I was younger, that stories could be a powerful way of getting people to think differently and be entertained and have fun while they were doing it, that serious things don't have to be boring and hard. Ended up being an early adopter of the Great Resignation. It wasn't called that when I did it in 2020, but in 2020, realized that this was the time to return back to my passion. So quit my job. I had been writing my book Beyond Leaning In as a business book written as a novel on the side for years, about 80% done. I'm not going to finish this if I'm staying in this job. And so quit the job, finished the book, took a comics drawing class, started drawing comics. And here we are. Unreal. Unreal. Isn't it funny, you know, you've gone back to 16 or 18 year old you. And as you were talking, I was thinking, there were two fiction books that stood out for me and I thought, this is it. So n- number one, I want to say you were ahead of your time because let's face it, what do we teach leaders? Storytelling, even a, a CEO who has to stand up in front of the market and talk about the business performance. We want storytelling. We need to bring those numbers and data and everything to life. So you know, you're ahead of your time there. But I read To Kill a Mockingbird as a young person, then as an older person. And boy, oh boy, fiction to educate me about race and racism and doing the right thing. So that was a book that just flashed before my eyes as you were speaking, thinking, hello, there's literature educating about social policy and and frankly, how to be a better human. And then the second book, which was Lencioni's Five Dysfunctions of a Team, because of course, it was a storytelling of of a fictional team. And I use, still use that as one of my tools to help leaders understand the human dynamics around the leadership table. So, you know, you were way ahead of your time there, Melanie. And, you know, I think there's great value in saying how do we meet people where they are to help them on their journey to mastery and in the context of this discussion it's mastery of how do we make workplaces work for women and mm-hmm. being able to meet people where they are and and I'll be very clear now being able to meet people in decision making which of course we know is still powerful leaders who make the decisions about women's careers are still predominantly white men across the world. So how do we meet white men where they are and help them understand and gain empathy for the lived experience of women? And I think, you know, comics, and we'll talk about the comics in a moment, and storytelling, great combination. 
How did that 12 years of climbing the ladder inform the book and your comics, etc.? Oh, gosh, I, it's, I don't even know where to begin there. I think that <laughs> as I was going through it, as I was in the thick of it, I I almost think I, I've almost felt like a sociologist within my life because I was living it and living these biases and finding all these ways that I felt like I was treated differently than the men and hearing all the ways that men and women were talked about differently, both by men and by women. And I was just so curious about it. I mean, I was, I was fuming and I was angry, but I think there was part of me that didn't know how to deal with that anger because, yeah, I think often women are told not to be angry, right? And we're just in a society told not to feel negative emotions, especially in the workplace. And so I just had all this anger and I didn't know what to do with it. And so I tried to understand what was going on around me. And I think that was constructive, but also not. If I could speak to my younger self, I would say that the understanding and that intellectual brain, that, that was all good, but that I should have also let myself feel my feelings. And I would have realized had I done so earlier, all these places where maybe my workplace wasn't aligned with my values. But hindsight 2020, right? Back then I wasn't feeling my feelings. I was just angry and trying to process that anger. And I processed through understanding in a way through empathy, And you mentioned To Kill a Mockingbird, and that was one of my favorites growing up and one that my dad talked about a lot. And he would always quote the Atticus Finch quote, you you never really know someone unless you've walked 100,000 miles in their shoes. And so I would try to understand it was almost empathy, not just for colleagues who were unintentionally committing bias every day, but also for the system, right? Why is this happening? Hmm. And I became just so curious, you know, is this just my experience? Is this other people's? Why is this happening? So I just started interviewing women everywhere. I get friends, cocktail party, barbecue on the plane, just trying to get a sense of what else was going on, seeing that what I faced was true everywhere. Didn't matter the sector or the size of the organization, right? Women were facing these same challenges everywhere. And I just also started reading and just seeing that everything I was experiencing and talking to others, all of these anecdotes were backed up by just troves of research about it. And so as I was going through my career, climbing the ladder, and I kept seeing, wow, at every rung, it, I thought it would get easier, but it actually gets harder. Women face more challenges. And I could just back that up with the data as well. I think that conversation around, as women, we are taught or socialised to dial down the anger, dial down the emotion, the double bind. And of course, you talk about the double bind and double standards in the book in a really clever, clever way. But I want to talk about the title of the book because I read Lean In mm-hmm. and I read Lean In, you know, when it first came out and went, okay, woohoo, here we go. And like you, as you were talking, I was thinking, gee, that actually have felt like a spectator on my own life a couple of times. And I remember a particular situation, almost like I was up on the balcony looking down at myself, having this conversation with a manager. And I'm going, oh my God, I'm having the assertive, aggressive woman talk. Mm-hmm. To me, oh my God, while I'm having it. And I'm, I'm feeling furious while I'm having it, but I'm observing myself. So you know, bizarre. Anyway, a little aside, but I read Lean In and thought, okay, here we go. Then became like, I think, a lot of other people disenchanted that, hang on a minute, 
I don't need fixing. Women don't need fixing. Mm-hmm. The system needs fixing. And you've mentioned the system. So this system is what you're looking at, this system of, well, systematic discrimination and keeping people down. But how did the beyond leaning in, you know, come into into your conscious being? Was it always the title of the book or was it, what's that about? It was the inspiration of for the book in the beginning. It wasn't always the title though. And partly it wasn't the title because I was a little bit worried as happened after I titled it, that people would come to me and say, well, are you trying to attack Sheryl Sandberg? Are you trying to pick a fight, right? Because people are always looking at these four stories of women battling one and the Sheryl Sandberg doesn't know who I am, right? And I would say, well, the, the title of the book is Beyond Leaning and it's not against leaning in. The whole point is we have to do more because I had a very similar experience to what you described, which is that first I was extremely excited about the book. And it was empowering. I remember when her TED Talk came out, I think it was 2010. And my friends and I would watch it before we were about to ask for a promotion or a raise. It was like this rallying cry. It was so empowering. A few years later, the book comes out. There's so much attention to it. And it felt amazing. Wow, we're finally going to have this conversation. And I think Sheryl Sandberg in the book says that lean in is not the only thing we need to do, right? She acknowledges that there are other challenges, there are systemic and cultural challenges that we need to address. That's not what her book is about. One book shouldn't be expected to do everything. So my problem isn't with the book lean in, it's how it got received and used by employers. And it felt to me like that phrase lean in became weaponized against women, that any time after that book came out, gender would come up in the workplace. It was this convenient shorthand, right? We we have this culture of sound bites and easy solutions and lean in is literally two words. So no matter what was going on, employers could say, okay, we have the solution. Women need to lean in. Let's give them some assertiveness training. Let's fix the woman, not the system. And I want to go there in the book now. And we and in the book you do have an older, you know, the main, well, one of the main protagonists in the book is the the CEO of this organization who is an older woman. And I'm paraphrasing here, has certainly got the, well, I had to work hard, and that's just the way men are, and that's just the way business is. And you just have to pull up your bootstraps, put your big girl panties on and crack on. And of course, women of a different generation, a younger generation, are going. Uh, no, I don't want to lean in. In fact, I want to lean out because I want this organisation to lean in and get it right. So can you tell us about her and, as you said, beyond leaning in and fixing the system? So the book goes back and forth between the points of view of six or seven different characters. There are different genders, there are different generations, there are different places in the organizational chart. And my hope was that everybody finds themselves in a few characters, but also develop some empathy for the characters unlike themselves. The story really begins in many ways with Deborah. She is the CEO of a tech company that she started. She has smashed all the glass ceilings. She has fought for women across her career. And so she's kind of shocked when she's seeing that women of younger generations advancing into executive positions are quitting at higher rates. They're less engaged in the surveys. And so it's kind of her journey. She ends up getting the reverse mentorship of a younger woman named Cassandra. It's her journey to try to understand 
what was going on. And I wanted Deborah to represent a few things. One, certainly something that I heard and saw my research, which was a generational perspective that Deborah did have to push those boulders up the hill, deal with so much over an explicit bias that some of the subtler forms of bias, she was conditioned to, hey, we got to let that go, right? You got to pick your battles. And after a while, kind of stops noticing them. And that stopping of noticing them is something that happens, I think, irrespective of generation. That also happens just as one moves into seniority. I've talked to many women who are millennials in leadership positions who said, wow, there are so many parts of Deborah that I identified with because as you get more senior, you represent the system. Yeah, you become the system. (laughs) You become the system, right? There's this very sad research about how irrespective of gender, as people become CEOs, they actually lose empathy. Yeah, and, and which is what why I always say that empathy and curiosity are the two game changers in DEI work. No, absolutely. So she does. She loses some of that empathy for per- different perspectives. She loses some of that curiosity because she is so busy, and she's. And I think we all need to have empathy for just the pressures that all leaders are under. She is so busy. She is trying to just get her work done. She's got the pressure of a board. Their finances are in trouble right now. And she's just trying to figure things out. And in doing so, she's lost a little bit of the empathy for, well, what is going on for our employees? What are they facing? And she's lost some of the curiosity of trying to understand what's going on. And it really is the staff that help her gain that back and help her not only realize what she's missing, but realize what she has missed. She returns to a younger version of herself Mm. who Mm. had exhibited certain leadership traits that are seen as more stereotypically feminine and was told to crush those and suppress them. And she gets back to her authentic leadership self. Which for so many of us, and I feel like, again, you know, it was like when I read Lencioni's, you know, Five Dysfunctions of a Team, I went, oh, God, I can see myself there. Eek. I did. I, I saw parts of myself mm-hmm. in Deborah. I saw parts of myself in Cassandra. And mm-hmm. this is the beautiful thing about the book is you can you can say, oh, yeah, okay. And now that's something I want to be on the lookout for. The piece that I want to pull out here, and again, a call to action to leaders is, what I appreciated about the story you told around Deborah's journey that she's on, which of course will never be done, is how she she put a system in place to remind her to check in. She started, as you said, the reverse mentoring program or the reverse mentoring engagement relationship, whatever it is. But I think for me, it was she committed to really listen. So do you want to expand on that a little bit? Because I think this is the advice for our listeners who are thinking, this is lovely, but what do I do if I'm already a senior person, I'm a CEO, I'm in the C-suite, and I want to avoid the problems that Deborah's got, what do I need to do? Can you expand a bit more on what she did to resolve those issues? She goes to a younger employee and one that she knows will push her. So the younger employee, Cassandra, is someone that she actually was assigned to mentor in a program and they didn't hit it off right away. She kind of felt like Cassandra was looking at her like you don't quite get it. Cassandra was asking her questions about how to be an authentic leader and questions that Deborah didn't really think were important. And so they weren't an an immediate pairing, right? I think a lot of times leaders will go to 
younger employees or more junior employees who they know will agree with them. But she purposely picks one that she has a sense, sees the world differently than she does, and she asks for help. And that's a hard thing to do as a leader, to really humble yourself in that way, especially on an issue that Deborah thought of herself as strong, right? I think often leaders will humble themselves when it's something they admit they don't know. They don't have a problem going to the Gen Z employee and saying, hey, teach me about social media. But this is an area of women in leadership. This is how Deborah has identified herself as an advocate across her career. And so it really does take humility to take that first step and say, there are things I'm missing and there are things that I'm wrong about and I'm going to ask someone for help. And so she does that. That's, so that's step one. Such a great call to action for our listeners is, you know, if you are already in a senior position, don't lose sight of of the fact that you're actually no longer representative of the folks that you're trying to lead for. You know, it's like we do customer focus groups. We want to have great customer experience. We interview customers. We hear from customers. We need to hear from those cohorts. And, you know, I think the systematic way that she went about it, but I agree with you there, holding up that mirror and saying, hmm, what might I not be good at that I thought I was good at? And having someone that you trust to tell you that in a way that's really safe is is an awesome leadership move by her. And you see her start to have a dawning realisation of, wow, just because I've made it doesn't mean that other women are going to make it because there are some barriers that are still in place. And one of those barriers, which is a, a an awesome term that you use in the book, is around mental autocompletes. And for those of you who've ever done the damn you autocomplete on your on your phone when you've sent a text <laughs> that looks like gobbledygook, the iPhone has put in a uh, ridiculous word. Well, you know, it, this is kind of what happens with our you know, our brains do mental autocompletes as well. Do you want to tell us a little bit more about that, Melanie? Because I love the concept. Oh, thank you. Yeah. So it's a phrase I started using after the iPhone rolled out its autocomplete emojis, right? The first time you would type in happy and the happy face emoji would come up and sad and the sad face emoji and whatnot. And I remember I typed in CEO. I can't remember why I was texting a friend and only male emojis showed up. And I typed in doctor and only male emojis showed up. And I thought, well, wow, the iPhone has this faulty programming that it was able to fix, but it's a lot easier to program a phone than it is a human brain. And it just made me think about all of the ways that we have these autocompletes and they're programmed from things we don't even remember, right? Something we may have heard a parent or a neighbor or a teacher say when we were five years old, representations on TV. They're constantly being reinforced as well every single day as we go about our lives and we hear two employees being talked about and Chad is being described as being great with data and Haley is described as having an infectious smile. That goes into the programming whether or not we realize it. And that means that those autocompletes are so deep rooted. I use that phrase instead of unconscious bias, even though essentially it's the same thing, because I think that we have a little bit of a bias against the word bias and it kind of shuts people down. I couldn't agree with you more. I, I think my experience like yours is that 
unconscious bias is it's white noise now and people are kind of sick of it and and I hear, well, I don't have any unconscious bias. And I think, well, actually you do because you're human. But how do we use some different terminology? And so this is why I really appreciate this terminology because, again, we're going to where people are and helping them. And there's also a mindset because I talk about mindset. So our mindsets create thoughts and actions and consequences, you know, bias. Those autocompletes can be done by people at, of all generations, of all different identities. So we all, we all have them. So I love that there's new language to help us, again, be curious and empathetic. So, you know, what is it like when you Google CEO and you go to the images page and it's full of men? So for a woman and for girls, and let alone if she's a woman of culturally and linguistically diverse background or she's a woman of colour, she just is, doesn't see herself represented in any part of society. As a little aside, this is why I really appreciate the work of the Gina Davis Institute. So Gina Davis has been doing this work for oh, gee, decades now on really helping the media, particularly children's media, represent girls a lot more strongly. So we, we've seen Pixar and Disney and what have you doing so many different things because we've had data and language and stories, to your point, stories about, hey, why is it that we only see a superhero who's male? I digress. I feel like I just want to tell everyone to read your book, which I am telling them, but coming back to the, you know, the lean-in phenomenon, which of course, as we've both said, we both grabbed hold of, because I, I agree, it was, for me, it was that clarion call and something for me to grab hold of to go, aha, this is something. But then, as you said, it was weaponized, and I saw lean-in being plonked on that many women's desks, figuratively speaking, to go, read this and you'll be fine. I want not just women to read beyond leaning in. How do we get those male allies to read it, Melanie? Because they're the ones. And, and that was one of the reasons why I wrote it from the perspective of a lot of different characters, including men, so that the men who read it identify with the male characters and they'll say, oh, right, I've been behaving like that and I need to change that as well. You know, I have, I'd say, a, a small but mighty contingent of men have read the book they're not necessarily going to pick it up, right? Somebody usually needs to recommend it to them. Yeah. Dear listeners, I used this strategy some time ago with a group of my peers, all men, bought them a book called The Wife Drought, which is by Annabelle Crabb, an amazing author and accomplished woman here in Australia about, you know, everyone needs a wife. I'll share the links in the uh, in the show notes. But for the men, my male peers, after they'd read it, they went, oh, my God, because all of them had wives who were enabling their careers and they hadn't realised that women don't, well, mm. I have a wife, but, you know. So I think being able to gift your teams a book like this and have a discussion, which, of course, mm. you kindly provide a book club discussion sheet with the book, so yeah. I think there's a call to action there is um, is really useful. But getting those people to read the book and discuss it as the basis for moving forward. Before we wrap up, there's one concept there, particularly around lessons for leaders, around slowing down to speed up on DEI. In the book, you talk about the concept is, well, we'll just get all this done and tick, 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 and away we go. And we've got a lovely plan and lots of activations. 
and we don't stop to sit in the yucky, uncomfortable stuff and really do it well. Tell us more about that piece because I think this is a real leadership lesson for um, for our listeners. Mm-hmm. Oh, and I'll also add that one way of getting men interested is often for them to start with my comics. Yeah, yeah, true. That it's kind of an easy inroad mm. <laughs> and then sometimes they're curious to read the book after that. So one of the concepts I talk about in the book is just this idea that we live in a quick win culture. I heard I said that once and someone said, did you say click win? And I said, no, quick win, <laughs> but also a click win culture, right? <laughs> or urgency culture mm. is another way to put it, that especially in corporate life, but really I think that all employers, nonprofits included, end up subscribing to corporate life mentalities and habits. And it's about urgency, how quickly can something get done? How fast can we check the box off, right? It seems like work life is often just this endless to-do list and checklist, and we're just trying to check off as many boxes as quickly as we can. And diversity, equity, and inclusion, unfortunately, is treated like one of those check boxes. So instead of going deep into, okay, systems culture, that's not easy to fix. Let's examine it. Let's spend some time. Employers just, you know, let's plan the one hour DEI training in the middle of the day mm-hmm. in between doing a 360 degree performance review and a difficult client call and whatever else people have on their checklist. Somehow it's not just time, right? It's also mental space and energy. Somehow people are squeezing in a DEI training. Well, that's not going to lead to anything. And so I think it's that quick win culture leads us to not treat DEI with the amount of attention and care it deserves, but it also just undermines DEI in all kinds of different ways, right? So just as an example, a lot of employers I talk to say that they realize they need to diversify their hiring pool for roles and really think about where their candidate pool, not just the same people who went to the same school as everybody who's in seat right now, or who knows the people who are currently in leadership. Hey, let's diversify our hiring pool. Well, diversifying your hiring pool actually is a little bit of extra work, right? You got to find new sources. You may be getting folks from different types of organizations, not someone who's had the exact same role before, but someone who's had a different role has all the same qualifications, but it looks a little bit different. Maybe the onboarding and training of them needs to look a little bit different too. Well, that all takes time. And if you're hiring folks, your recruiters are incentivized based on speed to fill the position, they're not going to do that extra work. Or if they do, they're going to do it haphazardly, right? Not in a way that's going to yield the results and success you want. They're just going to do it just to get the numbers, but not to necessarily find the right people. And your hiring manager is going to think, oh, wait, I'm going to have to do extra work to onboard this person compared to just hiring the person who everybody knows already. Mm-hmm. So absolutely, we can diversify the hiring pool, but doing so requires that we think of the incentives and we think about the support structures that people need so that they're not just making the fastest, the quick win decision. There's just That's just one example. We can just think of countless where that ends up undermining us. A hundred percent. And, you know, this is the you know, strategy versus tactics. It's not strategy or tactics, it's strategy and tactics. And I always say top down, bottom up, the squeeze play, whatever you want to call it. I think there's a whole bunch of stuff that we need to go really deep on. Yes, you can do some tactical stuff in the meantime, you know, the activations, the 
bits and pieces and what have you. But yeah, we do have to slow down to speed up. That is a strategy in and of itself. So I really appreciate that that analogy. And and I think our leadership lessons here, folks, is our jobs as leaders is to seek out the greatness in others so that we can achieve and sustain extraordinary outcomes for our organisation. And you know what? We have to seek out. And, you know, being a seeker means, well, you don't just use what drops into your lap. You've got to go and seek, hunt, gather, find those amazing people who are going to transform your workplace and your organization's performance across all of the spectrum. So really great advice. Slow down, speed up, spend some time thinking about what it might be. And I think listeners, from my perspective, do this in a a controlled way. So Maybe you start off with a pilot, find one area in the organization, you go, hey, let's pilot this new way of doing things. Let's surround you with the support, prove it out, iron out the lumps and bumps and then go, okay, this worked. And now we do it on the next part of the organization and now the next part. So, you know, it doesn't have to be the big bang. Let's have small controlled explosions that can really set us up for success. So great advice, Melanie. Hey, Melanie, how can we find you? My website is just my name, www.melanieho.com. And that has all the links to my social medias, Instagram, LinkedIn are probably where I am most often, but you can also find me on Twitter and Facebook, find information about my book, all the comics. I've drawn over 50 comics now. And I had season one of a podcast. It's a lot of hard work to have a podcast. So I admire all you podcasters out there. I did season one, which is a lot of fun. It features guests who actually listen to an excerpt of the book and then discuss it. And there's an excerpt, for example, with male allies. There's an episode with a wife and husband who read it together and they talk about the workplace, but also raising their kids. There's an episode with two sisters who read the book together and I love hearing from folks so feel free to reach out awesome and you are extraordinarily responsive um, as you have been to me so Dr Melanie Ho thank you for your time your expertise and your wisdom and thank you so much for Beyond Leaning In and your continuing catalogue of comics which I know as we've said a couple of times is it's really helping us to go where people are that can make the change so that women at work can really flourish. So, Melanie, thanks so much. Oh, thank you so much. Yeah, well, um, I'll have to have you drawing soon. We'll... <laughs> oh, my God. I, I, I can barely draw a stick person, so I, 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 uh, I... <laughs> challenge accepted. Everyone, yes, everyone can draw as okay. a way to process our ideas and as a way to create new vision. So, yeah, we'll have to do a virtual coffee and draw. Sometime. We will, we will. All right, dear listeners, you've, you've now got a commitment that you'll see a uh, some kind of art from me at some point. Thanks, Melanie. Great to meet you. Thanks so much, Michelle. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Lead to Soar. We sincerely appreciate your honest, positive reviews. You can leave questions at leadtosoar.com for Michelle and Mel to answer on future episodes. Until next time, we hope you'll use what you've learned here and lead to soar.